Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. How are you doing today? Well, I am feeling really blessed. I'm excited to be winding down 2023 with all of you. And you know what? I'm super excited for 2024, and I hope that you'll continue to join me in the new year. But listen, the only way to make sure that that happens is when you click the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this show right now. So that either looks like a plus symbol or a check mark, depending on what app you're listening on. But when you press that button, it automatically updates you when I release a new episode. Also, one last thing. I want to thank you for listening to my show. I truly appreciate you more than you'll ever know. The other day, I was looking at new and old Apple podcast reviews, and it touched my heart that people would leave such kind reviews for my show. You know, this show is my baby, and to realize that many of you look forward to my new episodes is a complete blessing. I get to do what I love while reminding you all to remain vigilant. And listen, the serial killer I started discussing last week is the true epitome that evil lives among us. And some people call us crime junkies crazy for listening and watching stuff about crime. But guess who else is watching, listening and studying? Serial killers. That's right. Israel Keys not only studied serial killers, he mocked some of them as well. But just as killers can learn how to hunt, would-be victims can learn how to protect themselves. No kidding, alarm systems are a deterrent. A barking dog is a deterrent. Even kids' toys left in the backyard could be a deterrent. With all that being said, let's continue our discussion of Israel Keys. But first, join me today as I tell you the story of Bill and Lorraine Courier. Now, let's dig in. On June 9, 2011, 55-year-old Lorraine Courier failed to show up to work at the Fletcher Allen Healthcare Facility in Burlington, Vermont. Lorraine worked with her sister-in-law, Diana. When Diana noticed that Lorraine hadn't showed up for work, she figured that she'd call her brother Bill, Lorraine's husband, to make sure everything was all right. Diana called Bill at his work. He worked for the University of Vermont lab department. To her surprise, when she called, she was told that Bill also failed to show up to work that day. Now, what are the odds that a married couple, Bill, 49 years old, and Lorraine, 55 years old, were no call, no shows to their jobs that they had been punctual for for years? Diana called the couple's house, but again, no answer. Then she did a drive-by at the house that the couple lived at. And as she drove by, it was eerily quiet and there were no signs of the couple. So Diana called the cops to report the couple missing. In the book, The Devil in the Darkness, author J.T. Hunter describes the investigation into the courier's disappearance. And when the Essex Police Department began their investigation, it was almost clear that foul play had been involved, although it was a case that truly stunned them. 
As authorities walked around the house located at 8 Colbert Street in Essex Junction for a welfare check, everything was locked. The windows, the door, nothing seemed amiss. Until one of the officers looked closely into one of the windows in the garage. From outside, the officer noted that there was no car in the garage and they saw a broken glass window from the door that led from the garage to the interior of the house. The cop then went and peered through the kitchen window and saw glass on the floor near the garage door. Eventually, authorities gained access into the courier home. While there, authorities assessed the house and things inside the home appeared undisturbed. Bill was a diabetic and his medicine sat as if ready to take. Lorraine's glasses and contacts were still in the home. And one of the things that was even more shocking was when they found the courier's pet birds, they were exotic birds, with sheets still covering the cages. Now, the couriers had a habit. They would put a sheet over the cages at night, but promptly remove the sheet in the morning to allow the birds to be able to see. Another thing is that the couriers loved their pet birds so much that often one courier would stay behind if the other one was going to go away for more than a night just to take care of their pet birds. Besides for the couriers themselves being missing, Also missing from the home was Lorraine's purse, a gun she had recently purchased because she had a premonition that something bad was going to happen, and the couple's vehicle was also gone. The gun, by the way, that Lorraine owned was a snub-nosed Ruger 38 revolver. As police did a more thorough look at the outside of the courier home, they discovered the phone line had been cut. Oh, and that broken garage window? it appeared to have been broken with an object that went from the garage towards the inside of the house, as if someone had tried to get in. Detectives then conducted a neighborhood canvas because they wanted to build a timeline for when the couriers were last seen. They gathered that multiple neighbors had seen both Bill and Lorraine the evening of June 8th, sometime between 5 and 7 p.m. One neighbor saw Bill working on the gutters at 6-ish, another saw Lorraine smoking a cigarette around the same time, And yet another neighbor saw both Bill and Lorraine in the yard around 6.30 p.m. But everyone mentioned that everything seemed normal, like two adults just going about their day. When investigators got access to Bill's computer, they noted that he had been online until roughly 8 p.m. He was looking at sports and checking Facebook. And when investigators looked into the courier's bank accounts, there had been no activity since June 7th. Other than that, no one saw anything out of the ordinary. You know, some people did recall that their dogs were going berserk when it got dark outside, but they thought their dogs were just being weird. So they didn't bother to look outside to see if anything was happening. Although now that they realized a whole couple was missing, they wished they would have just looked. Detectives quickly had to learn as much as possible about the couriers to figure out what had happened to them. Did they have adult children that were mad at them? Were they in any type of trouble? Had they independently just packed up and left? At that point, anything was possible. A month before their disappearance, Bill and Lorraine celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. They had been living at their home right there since 2003. The couriers didn't have children of their own, but they did have 10 nieces and nephews and eight great nieces and nephews. And they absolutely loved children. They had an above-ground swimming pool in the backyard, and they would often allow their neighbors to come and swim in the pool. Bill was a veteran, having served in the Army from 1980 to 1984. 
He was described as mostly a homebody and Lorraine was the more outgoing of the two, but they both loved being at home. Lorraine was so loved by Bill's family that the family often joked that if they ever got divorced, Bill's family would keep Lorraine. Bill and Lorraine were hardworking and they would carpool to work every single day. Lorraine would lovingly drop off her husband at work and head to her job, and then she would pick him up afterwards, and that arrangement seemed to work for them. Detective George Murdy was assigned to the courier's disappearance case, and immediately he put out a request for help searching for the couriers and their dark green Saturn vehicle. Within a day or two, they got a tip. Someone saw a man driving the courier's car near the Essex Junction Shopping Center on June 9th. The tipster was a former police officer who remembered the car because it almost crashed into him when the car was backing out of a parking spot. The man, the former police officer, provided a description and a sketch of the man driving the courier's car was released to the public. But it was later revealed that the former cop hadn't actually gotten a really good look at the person driving and had been pressured into doing the sketch. Soon after all this came to light, they found the courier's car parked in the parking lot of an apartment complex located at 241 Pearl Street. The car was parked near a dumpster and the car was only a five minute drive to the courier's house. Inside the car, there were a few clues. The driver's seat had been pushed all the way back as if a very tall person had been driving. The passenger seat, surprisingly, had been pushed all the way forward as if a taller person had been placed in the back seat And there was a piece of broken glass on the passenger floorboard. That glass matched the glass broken at the courier home. Authorities immediately seized the car. They seized the dumpster just in case it had evidence. And they searched the area for surveillance footage that may have caught the suspect on video. Over 30 police officers conducted a walking search covering a one-mile radius around the courier's home in hopes of finding something, anything. But they found nothing. And the family would offer a $10,000 reward for information leading to the couriers. And the thing is that the couriers' disappearance made it to the news. People did care about them. The media was very interested. Here's a clip from a news report about the reward and about how fearful Lorraine had been about a possible stalker leading up to her disappearance devastated by their disappearance and in fear for their lives. Bill and Lorraine Courier's family made another plea Friday for the public's help. Every day that they're not found increases our concern. So our families have come here today to offer a reward of up to $10,000. The reward comes as police say they've scoured surveillance video and records and searched a square mile around the couple's Essex home, including the area where their car was found abandoned a week ago. We have received dozens of leads from concerned citizens regarding possible sightings of the couriers. And police are still looking for this person of interest, possibly seen driving the couple's car after they disappear. She was very, very afraid. Linda Pratt, an old friend of Lorraine Courier, says they last saw each other two months ago. We just started laughing and talking about old times. When the two started catching up, Pratt says Courier told her she'd been bothered by a man lately. She never mentioned a name. She just said, this guy, he's at this point, I'm scared to death of him. It's like he's stalking me. Essex police confirmed that they have spoken to Linda Pratt about what she heard and they're following up on that information. They would not confirm whether Lorraine Courier had made any reports to authorities about being scared. 
the not knowing is, is it hurts. For Pratt and for the Courier's family, each day without news from them is a struggle. Please search your heart, search your mind, and review your memory, and call the Essex police with any bit of information, however small it may seem to you, that will help to save the lives of our dear beloved Lorraine. Detective Murdy from the state of Vermont decided to ask the feds for help, and he even consulted with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. He wanted to come up with some sort of victimology analysis for the couriers and maybe opine on the suspect. The BAU determined that the couriers had a, quote, low to moderate risk of becoming victims of violent crime, end quote, but that they were likely now deceased, and they predicted that the couriers had been abducted and killed by a white male acting alone using a firearm, that the offender had prior contact with one of the couriers, that the couriers had been targeted, and that the motivation was likely personal. The BAU believed it possible that the offender might have also increased the use of intoxicating substances in an attempt to self-medicate and calm himself after the abduction. I imagine that after hearing this, the detective might have felt like, what in the world? I remember reading this in J.T. Hunter's book and being like, this feels like going to see a psychic. Like, they're probably on crack, but let's see what they say. None of the information that they gathered from the BAU was helpful to the detective, but he had to try something. There were no leads, and honestly, there were no clues. What had happened to the couriers? Here's a news clip from my NBC5 where the media requested a copy of the search warrant of the courier's home and they received a list of items seized from both the home and the vehicle. Here's the clip. New documents released by a judge focus on search warrants conducted at Bill and Lorraine Courier's home in Essex Junction. The couple disappeared in June. In the days that followed, police began taking evidence from the home. The warrant issued by a judge authorized police to take many types of evidence. They included financial documents, computers, and credit cards, also physical evidence like blood and fingerprints. By order of the court, one of the items allowed to be seized is blacked out, considered too sensitive to the ongoing investigation. An inventory of the first search in the days after the couple went missing lists three small notebooks and receipts, also a few credit cards, a videotape, and a USB drive. Two items taken from the couple's kitchen are blacked out. Subsequent searches in July and August turned up more evidence. It included military documents, keys, cutters, and a pipe and baggie with residue, among other items. Detectives with the Essex Police Department were out for Columbus Day and not available to provide more context about these searches. I did speak to the police chief, though, who said it's the blacked out areas like these that are the items still important to the investigation. In that case, it's likely what has not been released that says the most. A search of the courier's car found abandoned days after they went missing is completely redacted. Ten items seized, and all of them still considered important enough to hold back from the public. As you heard, many items were redacted, but that was strategic. Just in case they caught someone, it wouldn't be some wannabe criminal who heard about it on the media and just wanted to bring attention to themselves. And then, after another search, the news ran this report. We'll be doing this all day, or most of the day and we hope to cover several areas. 
The search for Bill and Lorraine Courier is at a new level, with nearly 30 searchers on the ground looking for any sign of the missing couple. At this stage in the investigation, we want to push out the search further than the one-mile basic standard radius. It's been nearly two months since a family member reported the couriers missing, and their quiet Essex Junction home became a crime scene. Days later, police found their car abandoned less than a mile away. They now say that car provided a clue. There are approximately 40 or so miles on the vehicle that are unaccounted for. If the terrain looks daunting, so does the map. Pockets of the 20-mile radius have been searched, but police said all this ground could mean a needle in a haystack. Crews aren't searching wooded areas, but they're also focusing on the sides of roads where they say it would be easier to dispose of a body. So at this point, do you think that the couriers are deceased? It's, 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 it's really impossible to, to determine that, but as I've said all along, the longer the couriers are missing, the more concerned I am that they may not be alive. Concern that has teams searching a much larger area, hoping as much for a sign as for visibility in the community that could lead to a break. It's good. It's good to see that they're looking, still looking for them. After weeks and months of literally trying to find anything that could lead them to the couriers, Detective Murdy even agreed to be filmed on the air during a news segment. Here's that news segment for you to take a listen to. Well, it's a real mystery. As the search for Bill and Lorraine Courier moves into its fourth month, the questions move on as well. I have spent the majority of every day uh, at work uh, for the last 17 weeks on this. We sat down with Detective George Murdy of the Essex Police to talk about the work his team has done. A lot of work we, we do will, will still be quiet and behind the scenes. The couriers were last seen June 8th, leaving work. The next day, they were both gone. The police were immediately at the couple's Essex Junction home. We asked Detective Murdy about the warrants detailing searches conducted by his team, released Monday by the court. Uh, the three sheets you're showing me are obviously from the house. Those documents are in part blacked out, essential, Murdy says, to keeping some details of the case private. Sometimes you don't know how all the pieces fit until you find just one specific piece and then it falls into order. But how much information do police have? That's still unclear, and it doesn't seem to be enough. That's why Murdy says the courier's story may go well beyond Vermont soon. Uh, there's also uh, a possibility that we would want to go to a, um, a national uh, news media, like unsolved mystery type uh, of report as well. That decision has yet to be made, but Murdy insists state and federal detectives are still on the case nonstop. Uh, they're all very dedicated and hardworking and, and committed to, to solving this. Do you think that you will? Yes. In Essex Junction, Jill Glavin, News Channel 5. In my research, I discovered that some of the items that were redacted from the case file were the make and model of Lorraine's gun, the fact that Lorraine's purse was missing from the house, the fact that Bill's wallet was still at the house, and the fact that the phone line had been cut. Investigators also didn't reveal that all the doors to the home were locked when detectives got there, and they didn't reveal that the garage door glass had been broken. But then, in late October, after finally receiving Verizon's cell phone records belonging to the couriers, investigators discovered that someone had called the courier's phone on the morning of their disappearance, and it had rung long enough for it to hit a tower. Authorities used the boundaries from that tower ping to conduct their 10th and largest search to date. 
They were just hoping to find the couriers or any clues that might lead to them. But after their search, they were nowhere closer to finding the couriers. They found nothing. And it was absolutely devastating. And all the while, authorities in Essex, Vermont, were looking for the couriers. The man responsible for the courier's disappearance was so far removed from the area that he was literally on the opposite part of the United States. He was in Alaska. And when he saw the police sketch of the man seen driving the courier's car, he thought to himself, there is no way that they will ever catch me with that sketch. After Israel Keyes was caught due to his connection to missing 18-year-old Samantha Koenig, he must have felt like a captured rat. He had so much to say, but he wanted to maintain control. You see, Israel Keyes' crimes were all about control. I mean, this guy was totally a sexual sadist, but he liked control. And for months, he strung the FBI agents along, always promising he'd give them more information, so long as they gave him what he wanted. And while initially he didn't want the death penalty, he ultimately decided he wanted to plead guilty and he wanted the soonest death penalty execution date ever. So, with a bunch of vague promises from the FBI, Israel Keyes told investigators that he would be willing to give up another one of his gruesome crimes. He said, quote, I'll give you two bodies and a name if I get a cigar, end quote. When investigators asked him for the location, Keyes said, Burlington, Vermont. And just like that, that's how Keyes told investigators he was responsible for the courier's disappearance. But hold your pants because the courier's case is one of the most horrific and bizarre cases ever. And soon, Israel Keyes would regret ever agreeing to give the FBI any information about the couriers because in the end, they would never be found. And as Keyes already knew, it is really hard to prosecute someone without a body. At his request, agents gave Keyes a map. He pointed and said, Bill and Lorraine Courier. When asked how he met them, Keyes said, well, I didn't. They asked how he picked them specifically. Random, he responded. They showed Keyes a picture of the couriers. And Keyes nonchalantly said they were both in big black trash bags, likely skeletonized by this point. This is what Keyes said about the days leading up to the courier's double murder. Keyes flew from Anchorage to Chicago on June 2, 2011. During this flight, he took with him a Ruger 1022 Charger handgun that he checked with his luggage, legally declared, by the way, for those of you wondering. Once he got to Chicago, he rented a car and drove from Chicago to Indiana, where he stopped to see family. Then he drove to New York, then to Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. During his stop in Vermont, he stayed at the Handy Suites Hotel, checking in on June 7th and staying in room 216, where he paid for a four-night stay. He got a fishing license in Vermont, actually allegedly fished for a few days, and after he went fishing, he headed to the Woodside Natural Area near the Woodside Juvenile Rehabilitation Center, where he retrieved one of the many kill kits he had buried throughout the United States. These, quote, kill kits are contained in five-gallon Home Depot buckets, like, you know, those giant, like, usually they're orange or, or white or whatever. So the kill kits were contained in these Home Depot buckets, 
Inside the Home Depot buckets, there were items that were made for kidnapping, killing, and disposing of a body. Keyes admitted that he'd been burying these kill kits throughout the U.S. for the last decade or so. And on this particular night, he retrieved the bucket that he buried in Vermont two years prior. Yep. You see, before Keyes made Bill and Lorraine Courier his victims, he had been planning something for this area of Vermont for years. But more on the kill kits later. On his last night in Vermont, he knew he would be committing a murder. So, as he often did, he staked out places where he might take the victim or victims after abducting them. He would usually kidnap someone in one location, take them somewhere else to rape and kill them, and then possibly dispose of their body at a different location. Because this was one of his things. This way, it would be close to impossible to track him. On this evening, Keyes was looking for a church. He was really itching to kill someone in a church. And possibly he even thought about leaving the body there for some poor church schmuck to find the body the next morning. But while Keyes was driving, he saw what looked like an abandoned farmhouse that was a little removed from the street. A plus was that there was a for sale sign outside. So clearly the house was vacant. And he thought it was perfect for his plan. Then once he found the house, Keyes went hunting. He returned to his hotel room where he grabbed his kill kit. His kill kit included a 40 semi-automatic pistol, a handgun with a silencer, cable ties, duct tape, and blindfolds. He then walked out to look for his next victim. Of course, Keyes turned off his cell phone and took the battery out. This would become a sign of when Keyes was committing a crime. Initially, Keyes had his eyes set on wanting to kidnap, rape, and kill a man. And he hadn't walked far from the hotel when he got to the Cornerstone Commons apartment. And while he was there, waiting in the woods and stalking, he saw a man drive up in a yellow bug. Perfect, he thought. The thing was that it was raining that night. So as the man pulled into the parking spot, Keyes quickly came out of hiding And as he was approaching the back of the car, the man inside, oblivious to the possibility that he was being stalked, well, he popped out of the car, covered his head with a newspaper, and beelined into his apartment. Keys, upset the guy got away, turned and continued to hunt for his prey. But first, he needed to regroup at his hotel room. During his interview with the FBI, Keyes actually said something to the effect of, that guy got lucky. He was really going to get it that night. Ugh, what a dirtbag. Now, as I was reading this, I wondered if that guy from Vermont who drove a yellow bug in the summer of 2011 ever knew how close he was to dying. Anyway, at around midnight, Keyes ventured back out of his hotel, this time deciding he wanted to double down and mess with a couple. Keyes then walked less than a quarter mile from the hotel and started scouting out houses. He saw the courier's house and did a quick look and see around. He wanted a home that didn't have kids because apparently after he had a daughter, he realized kids were off limits. Oh yeah, I think I mentioned this before, but this Israel Keyes character is an actual father. But more on that later. It was dark that evening and everything was pretty quiet outside. Seeing no kids' toys, Keyes looked at the layout of the house from the outside. There was only one air conditioner unit inside, so Keyes determined that the air conditioner was in the master bedroom, where the residents were probably sleeping. 
As Keyes walked around the house, he found the phone line and cut it. One, to ensure no one called out. And two, if the house was connected to an alarm system. Well, it wasn't any longer. As Keyes was canvassing the home, a neighbor came outside with his dog. Keyes waited until the neighbor was back in the house before continuing with his plan. In total, from when he picked the house to when he actually made entry, was about a good hour. By 2 a.m., Keyes was ready to make entry. He got a chair that was sitting in the yard and he brought it to the side of the house. He climbed up and popped out a ventilation fan in the garage window and squeezed his way through the window. The car in the garage was unlocked, so Keyes got inside and looked in the glove box to determine who lived inside. Bingo, an older couple. Keyes was ready to attack the couriers while they slept. Now remember, Keyes had no idea what these people looked like. He didn't know if they had weapons, so he knew the initial minute was key to what he called a blitz attack. The door leading into the house had a screen door and then a regular door. Keyes managed to pry open the screen door easily, but was shocked that the door leading into the house was locked. Wearing a headlamp so that he could see where he was going and carrying a gun to subdue anyone inside, Keyes smashed the window pane on the door leading into the house using a crowbar. He unlocked it and then proceeded to the bedroom where he zip-tied both Lorraine and Bill's hands. He did this in under six seconds. Honestly, to me, this seems close to impossible. But if true, Lorraine and Bill didn't even have a chance to realize that this wasn't a nightmare. Once the couple was zip-tied, Keyes asked the couple a bunch of questions. He was asking about items in their house. He was looking for valuables, jewelry, guns, ATM cards. And while he was asking these questions, he noticed an army insignia that Bill had in a spare bedroom drawer. Keyes instantly recognized the insignia as it was the insignia for his army unit when he served. You see, both Israel Keyes and Bill Courier served in the 25th Infantry Division. So Keyes actually made small talk with Bill about being in the army, which, you know, must be so terrifying, but also maybe reassuring. Like, I wonder if Bill thought, okay, this guy is one of us. Maybe he's just having a bad day. Maybe he just needs to take a few things. I mean, probably not. Regardless, it's still a terrifying thought. Lorraine, well, she was the spicy one here. While Keyes kept them on the bed as he grabbed two suitcases and filled them with items, Lorraine tried to get off the bed, but Keyes quickly overpowered her and smushed her face onto the pillow. After retrieving Lorraine's gun and purse and a suitcase full of items, Keyes put Lorraine in the front passenger seat and he placed Bill in the back seat, still zip-tied. Bill and Lorraine were rightfully asking questions, pleading for their lives. They even told Keyes that if he let them go, they wouldn't tell a soul. And Keyes told them that he wasn't going to hurt them, that he simply was dropping them off with some friends so that he could request ransom. Again, just like in Samantha's case, Keyes had zero intention of letting them go alive. But he wanted to keep his victims calm, especially considering there were two of them. On his way to the abandoned for sale house that he had spotted earlier, Keyes made a pit stop at the hotel to pick up a shovel, some trash bags, and some Drano. Then he pulled up to 32 Upper Main Street. By this point, it was close to 4 a.m. Keyes first decided to take Bill inside the abandoned house. 
He walked him down to the basement and tied him to a stool. Then he went back outside to look for Lorraine. As he walked outside, mind you, it's pitch black, except that he's wearing his headlamp. He realized that Lorraine was no longer in the car. You see, she had managed to get out of the car and break free from the zip ties that were tying her hands and her feet. And as soon as she saw Keys, Lorraine ran like hell. But Keys was much too fast. He caught up to her like a lion taking down a gazelle and he dragged her into the house where he took her up to a second floor bedroom. Now, in the book American Predator, author Maureen Callahan describes the house and she describes that this house was in such disarray that there was an actual hole in the roof. The hole went through the roof, through the second floor, all the way down to the first floor. And the bedroom where Keith took Lorraine, well, in this bedroom, you could actually see the sky through the giant hole in the ceiling. Once in the bedroom, Keys duct taped Lorraine to the mattress. Then he put a noose around her neck and then tied it to an exposed pipe in the wall. He then tied each leg separately so that she remained in a spread eagle position. While Keys was upstairs securing Lorraine, Bill was in the basement causing a ruckus. While he had initially been secured to a stool, he was hooting and hollering, asking about his wife. He was very defiant. Those were Keys' words, not mine. When Keys ran down to check on Bill, Bill had also removed the ties that kept him secured to the chair. Keys attempted to get Bill to shut up, but when Bill failed to comply, and also when Bill was pushing Keys around, Keys grabbed a shovel and began to attack Bill. But Bill continued to fight back, at which point Keys admitted that he lost control. He momentarily left to retrieve his gun, fitted with a silencer, and when he returned, he was so mad that he emptied the gun on Bill, killing him. Except that Bill didn't fall to the ground until the very last bullet. Keys would later reveal that Bill was the only one of his victims who he ever killed with a gun. Although, listen, Keys is a freaking liar. And honestly, can you really believe a liar? Also, Keys would later reveal that he made homemade gun silencers from items he bought at the local hardware store. I can't recall if the silencer he used on Bill was homemade or not, but I did want to throw in that fact there. Now that the situation was quiet in the basement, Keys was not happy because he had intended to rape Bill as well, while he was still alive, of course, but he couldn't take defiance because Keys loved control. Keys then returned to Lorraine up in the second floor Lorraine knew that he was about to rape her and she fought back as much as she could, but Keyes did it anyway. In fact, he raped her twice. Then he strangled her until she fell unconscious. Once she awoke, Keyes took Lorraine down to the basement where he strangled her with a rope. After both Bill and Lorraine were dead, Keyes decided to dispose of their bodies in giant trash bags. He double-bagged them because they were heavy. Then he poured one bottle of Drano in each bag, then pushed them all the way to the corner of the basement where he threw other trash and items over them. Keys had initially planned on burning down the house, but when he looked outside, he realized the sun was coming up and he knew people would be driving down the road. Keys even mentioned that he was in such a rush to leave that he left all of the shell casings on the basement floor. He then got into the courier's car, drove to Lowe's, walked back to his hotel, 
He then went back to the courier's car because he was going to use the car to commit a bank robbery or two. But when the car started acting up and he realized the car was almost out of gas, he abandoned the plan and the car in that apartment complex. Keyes then returned to his rental and drove from Vermont to Maine to see his brothers. Keyes initially planned on doing the entire ransom note thing, similar to what he had done with Samantha and Alaska, but he decided against it because before the couriers died, they told him they had less than $100 in their bank account. So as Keyes drove back from Maine after spending time with his brothers, he burned the suitcase he used to keep the courier's belongings at a campsite in New Hampshire. That suitcase contained the courier's cell phone, credit cards, and the car keys. Keyes then did what a lot of criminals do. He returned to the scene, sort of. You see, he drove past the location where he had abandoned the courier's car. And seeing cops there, he simply kept on driving. Keyes then drove to New York, where he tossed Lorraine's gun, the bolt and barrel of his own gun, and the silencer he used to kill Bill. When Keyes confessed to the courier's abduction and murder, I can imagine the investigators were cringing. But they were probably very happy to corroborate Keyes' story and give closure to the courier family. The feds called Vermont and the search for the abandoned for sale house began. In searching for the abandoned for sale house, the team in Vermont eventually narrowed it down to the grounds of 32 Upper Main Street, just three miles from the courier home. But the thing was that this former abandoned farmhouse that had sat there less than a year earlier, well, by the time they were searching it, it had been demolished. Yup, the house was gone. So if the couriers were in garbage bags in the basement, guess what? They were no longer there. But this left investigators intrigued. Really, it left them perplexed. You mean to tell me that two dead bodies were in a house and no one entered the house before it was demolished to make sure that no one was inside? You know, maybe like a quick peek and look? I mean, come on, people. When I first heard this story years ago, this was the part of the story that truly stumped me. How in the world could this happen? Well, in J.T. Hunter's book, Devil in the Darkness, he describes how Detective Murdy went searching for those exact answers. He first determined that the demolished farmhouse had ended up in a landfill in Coventry, Vermont. But when he tracked down one of the employees who was part of the demolition team, the employee recalled, oh, that house down on Upper Main? Yeah, that place smelled horrendous. He said, quote, it smelled like a dead animal was in the basement, end quote. What? Okay, did you go and check to see the animal where the smell was coming from? Like, did you check? No way, Jose. He did remember the smell got worse when the excavator punched a hole through the floor and he recalled seeing a large trash bag, but he simply used the machine to grab the trash bag and threw it into the dump truck. The trash was then taken to the Wilson Transfer Station and ultimately taken to the landfill. The detective must have been shocked. Like, what in the actual hell is wrong with people? I mean, listen, I am not volunteering to go towards the stench of death, but maybe call someone, you know? I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but damn, man. Anyway, the detective tracked down another person, the groundskeeper for the house, the one previously located at 32 Upper Main Street. This grounds person remembered seeing burn stains inside the house, like a fire had been started inside. 
He also remembered strategically avoiding the basement because of the smell. This dude was used to the smell of septic tanks and odd smells, but this smell, he said, it was far too much. So instead, he opened the door at the top of the basement, used his flashlight to take a peek and look, and what did he see? Well, he recalled seeing a couple of trash bags, so he figured it was just house trash. He closed the door and called it a day. On April 12th, 2012, an evidence recovery team showed up to what was left of 32 Upper Main Street. They split into two search teams and divided the area on the ground into four quadrants. That way, they wouldn't accidentally search the same area twice. It was a way to stay organized. Finding nothing at what remained of the house that once sat at this location, they moved on to the landfill. On May 7th, the evidence recovery team showed up at the landfill in Coventry. There, they began the search for the couriers. The house had been demolished in the fall of 2011. It was now spring 2012. Would they even find anything? Well, it didn't matter. They had to try. Mind you, at this point, the courier's family isn't even aware that some crazed serial killer in Alaska had confessed to killing the couriers. But authorities were hopeful that they could bring the couriers home for a proper burial because no human should be discarded like trash. The endeavor would prove challenging, but the search team who were actually out there searching, they were up for the task. They wore steel-toed shoes, they doubled and tripled up on their gloves, and they even had to wear respirators to protect from the gases in the landfill. And in total, the search for the courier's remains would last 11 weeks. At the end of April, during one of his many meetings with the FBI, Keyes asked investigators the status of the search for the couriers. And when they told him they were still digging, Keyes wondered aloud if they had been searching the right house because he left the garbage bags in the basement. How hard could it be to find two dead humans in an abandoned basement? And that's when they informed him that the house had been demolished and the house hadn't been searched before it was destroyed. In shock, Keyes said, wow. He was amazed that no one noticed the bodies in the dump truck. And then while Keyes knew that they were still searching for the courier's bodies, he told investigators that when they did eventually find something, he wanted to see pictures, like pictures of the bones, the bodies, etc. Investigators asked him if he wanted to see the pictures, you know, to make sure that they were not lying. And Keyes simply said, huh, well, I just want to see them. I kind of get my kicks where I can get them nowadays. Which is so gross. After Keyes told investigators where he dumped Lorraine's gun, they sent out a search team to look in the Blake River Reservoir. It didn't take long for the FBI dive team to recover the weapon. Other items that had previously been found in this location were Keyes, barrel, and bolt from one of his guns. On June 1st, Detective Murdy and the Vermont Deputy State Attorney had a telephone interview with Keyes. Before they could ask any questions, they had to get their questions pre-screened by the FBI. Clearly, Vermont really wanted to have a face-to-face -face with Keyes, but the FBI said, hell no. So Vermont had to settle for the phone interview. Detective Murdy asked Keyes why he killed the couriers. He was trying to determine how someone could be so evil. Keyes said, quote, short answer is that I don't really consider myself all that different or all that special from hundreds of thousands of other people. 
All you have to do is type in a word search on any given porn site. And there's all kinds of people who have fantasies about rape and bondage and the kinds of things that I take to another level, end quote. A follow-up question was asked, in essence asking, but why? Keys responded, quote, with me, it's a combination of things. It's not just about the sexual fantasy, and it's definitely not just about the money. And it's not just about the adrenaline. It's all those things together, and that's what I get out of it. And once I did it, once I started, there was nothing else like it, end quote. This interview between Vermont and Keys lasted about an hour. And it was during this interview that Keyes admitted that studying serial killers was his hobby. On July 18th, after keeping the Courier family in the dark for months, the team responsible for the search of the Couriers brought their family in and told them about Israel Keyes. They asked the family to keep it quiet because they were trying to help the feds uncover other Israel Keyes victims. The Courier family agreed to keep it quiet, especially since they were not fans of the media. The following day on July 19th, after a 51-day search that spanned 11 weeks, the FBI terminated their search at the landfill. They never found Bill and Lorraine Courier's remains. On July 20th, the Vermont State Attorney Coffin made the following statement regarding the disappearance of William and Lorraine Courier. The statement is lengthy, so bear with me. He said as follows, Investigative leads from a federal investigation in another state led to the search of a location on Route 15 in Essex Junction on April 12th to 13. Information developed in connection with that search led to a search of a targeted portion of the Casella Coventry landfill in Coventry, Vermont. That search was focused on finding evidence of the physical remains of William and Lorraine Courier. For the last approximately 11 weeks, the landfill was searched in a massive effort led by specialized teams of the FBI and assisted by significant resources from the Vermont State Police and Essex Police Department. Unfortunately, the search did not recover the courier's remains. It has now been concluded. Nonetheless, the investigation has developed significant information that William and Lorraine Courier were abducted from their home and murdered shortly thereafter in June of 2011. The person believed to have committed the murders is in custody in another state and will remain in custody. No charges have yet been brought against this person for the courier's murders, but charges are anticipated. This is a federal investigation at this point in time. We will take only limited questions and will not comment further on evidence recovered and other issues relating to the ongoing nature of the investigation. Most importantly, our hearts go out to the families of Bill and Lorraine Courier, as well as their friends and to the community of which they were a part. This was an unspeakable tragedy, but hopefully these developments provide some level of closure for them, end quote. That night, a local news station revealed that a man named Israel Keyes was the man responsible for killing the Couriers. The story was picked up by the Alaska media. Mind you, up until that point, the media had not announced, nor had anyone law enforcement allegedly, named Israel Keyes in connection to the Courier case because they were trying to honor Keyes' request to keep his name out of the media's attention should they cause a media circus. After this release of his name, Keyes allegedly got into a blame game situation with the FBI agents he had been working with. He clammed up and refused to give up much information. However, he did give some. After all, according to Keyes, had he not said anything about the couriers, they would literally have nothing on him. 
he had actually said, well, maybe I did it, maybe I didn't. On August 25th, a memorial service was held for Bill and Lorraine at the Essex Alliance Church in Essex. Months later, the Courier family put out a press release. It said, quote, Although it has been a long road for our family, we continue to mourn in our own ways. We do feel lighter in our hearts now that some closure has come to us. But the pain we have been dealt through this journey still lingers on. We are more conscious of our surroundings and people around us. We find ourselves looking at strangers and wondering what kind of person they are. We lay in bed at night and listen until sleep falls upon us, end quote. While the Courier family was grieving in Vermont, Israel Keyes was meeting with the FBI regularly. And while refusing to give up any more bodies, he did insinuate that there were more. But before he'd be willing to give up anything else, he wanted his demands met. During this period, Keyes would reveal a little about his upbringing, his time in the military, his first violent acts against animals, and how he ultimately ended up in Alaska. Meanwhile, investigators were questioning his family, his military buddies, and the mother of Keyes' daughter. And what authorities discovered was disturbing, primarily because while Israel Keyes was living a secret life of traveling to kill, anyone who knew him felt he was a doting father, a savvy businessman, and an upstanding citizen who served his country. Yet, he was anything but. Next time on Military Murder. All right, everyone, I will finish off the month still talking about Israel Keys because just like BTK, there is a lot to cover. But don't worry, the next two parts will come out a week apart. So that way you can listen and binge all the way through. Again, thank you so much for listening. And if you wouldn't mind leaving me an early Christmas present and leaving me five stars wherever you're listening, I would be grateful forever. For those of you wondering what to give this holiday season, Gift yourself or someone else a Military Murder Patreon membership or an Apple Premium membership. For just $5, you get immediate access to over 30 full-length bonus episodes, and they're mostly cases that you won't hear about anywhere else. All right, everyone, have a great holiday. My main sources for today's episode were two books. First was J.T. Hunter's Devil in the Darkness, and the second book was Maureen Callahan's American Predator. I also relied heavily on the FBI.gov website, which included extensive write-ups and videos of Keyes' confession. In discussing the investigation of the Courier's missing persons case, I relied heavily on investigative journalism from MyNBC5. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there is an entire podcast focused simply on Israel Keyes. I have listened to season one of True Crime Bullshit, the podcast I was just telling you about, and it is an extensive look into Israel Keyes. So if you need to keep learning more about this serial killer, I highly recommend you listen to True Crime Bullshit. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Production. This month's executive producers are Bob, Falcon 13, Jen, Tina, Alicia, Nicole, and Myrtle. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time.
who's working on her podcast. I don't want to.